0: Scripture you're reading today is uh, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask them for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I am in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Keep your Bible open, if you will, to John 17. I want to say just a word or two before we get into the lesson tonight. We have plenty of reasons to be optimistic about the future of this church. We have a number of willing workers who are here. We have good programs that are already in place. And I hope that you share the optimism that I have for the future about this church. Jesus prayed. If you've read the first four books of the New Testament, you are not at all surprised by that statement. Jesus prayed. He not only prayed, He prayed fervently and frequently. We we know that in just one of the accounts of his life, that of Luke, we can count at least 10 separate times that it is mentioned that Jesus prayed. And it seems from th- that record that there is no circumstance, no situation that excluded his practice of prayer. Jesus prayed frequently. It wasn't for show. Now, that wasn't true of some people who prayed. In fact, in Matthew 6 and verse 5, Jesus spoke of those who were hypocrites and loved to have people see them praying. That's why they stood in the synagogues to draw attention and on the street corners to have men observe them praying. Jesus didn't do that. In fact, Luke 5.16 says that he withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. A lot of the Lord's praying that we read about was private prayer. Him alone with the Father. He not only prayed frequently, he did also pray fervently. His prayers often involved matters of real consequence. Consequence. For instance, before selecting the men who would serve as his apostles, Luke 6.12 says he continued all night in prayer to God. I doubt that there is a person here this evening, including myself, who could claim that same thing. That we have prayed all night, but Jesus did because he saw the importance of it. Shortly before the Lord's arrest in the garden, we read this statement in Luke 22 and at verse 44. The text says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's fervent prayer. Jesus prayed often. And he prayed with a lot of intensity. Those are helpful things to know, but we are not only blessed to know about the times and the way Jesus prayed, but also to know a little bit about the content of his prayers. And and one of those places that draws our interest is that prayer that is recorded in John 17. You know from reading John that this entire chapter is taken up by that prayer. And it is truly an example of earnest praying. the The prayer, as we study it, can be easily divided into three parts. Verses one through five, Jesus prayed for himself. Now we we have been warned, by inspiration through the writing of James, about the danger of selfish praying. James warns about praying that you might consume it on your lust. But Jesus did not pray selfishly. His desire to be glorified in the beginning of the prayer was so that men might in turn glorify the Father. Jesus understood that if they glorified him, they would glorify the Father. Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prayed for his apostles. He knew that their work was going to be both difficult and dangerous as they tried to spread the gospel. If you look at verses 14 and 15 of John 17, the Lord, as he prays, says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Our Lord understood that the devil would do everything he could to stop their work, to throw obstacles in the way of their work. And so he prayed for them. And then in verses 20 through 26, Jesus prayed for all who were and would become believers through the rest of history. And when we contemplate that, those of us who claim to be believers, we are struck with awe that Jesus prayed for us. Not not just for himself, not just for the apostle. He prayed for us if we are true believers. What a great thing that is to contemplate. There, There are a lot of different lessons, I suppose, that could be learned from this prayer, and you have heard sermons on this prayer before. Each and every verse of the prayer is worth considering, but for tonight we're just going to limit ourselves to two points as we look at the heart of Jesus and what seems to be really in his heart and is important to him. And then we're going to conclude by hopefully making a few brief applications from the prayer. Let's start this way. Let's think about the anticipation of Jesus. It's clear as you read this prayer that Jesus is looking ahead. And one of the reasons he's looking ahead is that he knows that his time on earth will soon be over. The, the things that were waiting awaiting Jesus, the arrest and the trials and the crucifixion. Jesus understood that coming, he knew what he had to do, and he knew it would not be easy. If one reads carefully uh, this prayer, you will notice that Jesus seems to think of himself as if he is already being seated at God's right hand. Let me show you a couple of things about that. In verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. J- Jesus refers to the authority given to him over all humanity to bestow eternal life. And I suppose that that could confuse someone if he notes that after the death of Jesus, the Lord would say all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We also read this in Hebrews 5, and I'll give you a chance to turn in your Bible to Hebrews 5 for just a moment. Hebrews 5, beginning verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The the idea of having been perfected, having been completed as a Savior indicates that there was a time before his death on the cross that Jesus was not the perfected Savior. That would come at the time of his death. He he would have that work perfected. Then in verse 4, the Lord says, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I have finished. And yet we understand as Jesus hung on the cross, he also said, it is finished. John 19, verse 30. And then you come to verses 11 and 12, and you read this. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one. As we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. To to us, as we read that, it sounds like he's saying he's already left the world. he's, He's saying that Judas is already lost. Then you skip to verse 24, and as you read that, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus does not say where I will be, but where I am. Now, I want to assure you as you read those, what might seem to be puzzling statements that Jesus has not lost his mind. He he recognizes fully where he is. Look again at verse 13. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. If Jesus says the things we read, but he also says... I am in the world. Why does he speak the way he does? I believe it's because he knew God's plan was so certain of being completed that he could talk of those plans as if they were already completed. There is a certainty in his anticipation. Now what Jesus is doing here is using a figure of speech that we call Prolipsis, P-R-O-L-E-P-S-I-S, Prolipsis. And, And that figure of speech is used when someone wants to speak of the future as though it were already present. Prolipsis comes from two Greek words and literally means to throw forward. And so what the Lord is doing is throwing things forward to when they will actually be. The Lord wasn't the only one who used this figure of speech. And incidentally, I'm not going to give you examples, but it's used even today. Go all the way back to Genesis 3 and verse 20 and you read, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, if Adam named her Eve in the third chapter because she was the mother of all living, it didn't happen until the fourth chapter that she became the mother of one child. And so there there is an anticipation in the naming of her that that is what she will become. It's throwing forward. Paul also uses this in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And yet we know from a very technical standpoint, he had not finished the race. He was not dead yet. But in his mind, the anticipation is such that he's using this prolipsis statement to show that he will indeed finish the race. He understood what was ahead, he anticipated it. See, I think the marvelous thing about the anticipation of the Lord is that he is so confident that God's plan was indeed going to be accomplished. God's will would be done. And that through the doing of that will, he would again take his rightful place in heaven. And I think it helps us to see Jesus praying with that anticipation. We see something else in the prayer, and that not only the anticipation of Jesus, but the appeals that Jesus made. The first appeal, of course, is for himself, that he may be glorified. As as I noted earlier, this was not for selfish purposes. Verse 1 shows that. Glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. Jesus wasn't just seeking glory for himself. He was seeking glory to be directed to the Father. And the glorification of Jesus would result in the Father being glorified. Jesus had done all that he could to magnify, to lift up, to honor the Father. And he could honestly say in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. In heaven, there would be restored glory. Look at verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. That heavenly reunion of those two members of the Godhead. So that the glory might be restored to that heavenly group. The second appeal that Jesus made was in behalf of the apostles. It, it, It is without doubt that Jesus loved these men who had been in his constant company for three years. He he had gone through a lot with them. He had been patient with them as they struggled to understand what he was doing and why he was doing it. And he loved them. And, And that love motivated him to ask the Father to keep them. We saw that again in verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your name. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Our Lord wanted the Father's help in providing for them. And they would need it, and Jesus knew they would need it. He, he had warned them earlier that they, would be, that they would be persecuted, that they would suffer for his sake. He would tell them, if they hated me, they will hate you. And they needed to be ready for that. He he doesn't seek the father removing them from the world. Or making sure that they have a shield around them so that nothing can really happen to them physically. But he does want to keep them spiritually. He wanted what was best for them. And, And part of that, as we read in verse 11, was that they be united. That was not always the case with the apostles. There was some sense of I want to be number one among them. And they quibbled and argued among themselves as to who was the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus had to sometimes remind them that servanthood is what he sought. He didn't seek to set men up. For everybody else to appreciate, but to serve and to help in the work that God had ordained to be done. In verse 13, Jesus wanted them to have joy. These, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus did not want to leave them to a life of unhappiness. And his leaving could have caused that because they wanted him to stay. But Jesus wanted them to have joy. In verse 15, to be safe. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that, they, that, you, that you should keep them from the evil one. And then for them to be truly sanctified, really set apart. To be sanctified is to be set apart for a holy purpose, and that's what Jesus wanted. Not not to be just separated from other people so they could be separated, but to be separated for God's cause. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. And then in verse 19, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. And then we come to the final appeal, and that is for all believers. We hear the Lord's concern as he prays for believers to be united, not just as apostles, but believers, knowing that unity would foster belief in others. We see that in verse 21 that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Our, Our Lord understood that unity would be a mark of distinction that would help people say those people are followers of Jesus who is indeed from God. They are united in that. And and he wanted all believers, and that would include you and me, hopefully, to have the privilege of beholding his eternal glory. In verse 24, Jesus would say, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. If you and I should be blessed to be in heaven, we will be observers of the glory of Jesus. The the one who, while he lived on the earth, had to give up some of that glory. Because to live in human flesh caused him to have to go through the things humans go through. And to suffer physically... And to know what hunger was like and disappointment was like. But those who get to go to heaven will see a different Jesus. They will see the triumphant Christ. The one who is now elevated to the rightful place of glory. Which he had with the father before he came to the earth. And how you and I ought to rejoice. That he appeals for us. That he intercedes in our behalf. Later in the New Testament, after the church has begun and Paul is writing letters to Christians. He will write in Romans 8.34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of of God who also makes intercession for us. Jesus has not stopped appealing to the Father in our behalf. And then the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 7 and verse 25, would add this, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It is a constant process that our Lord intercedes in our behalf. How privileged we are that he does that. And so it is clear that he cares for us. There's one more thing we need to talk about, and that's how we apply this prayer. I think we need to be more than just impressed by what the Lord prays. We need to ask ourselves honestly, how do I respond to the Lord's prayer in John 17? Let's start with this. He wanted to glorify the father. Do we remember Jesus glorified the father, according to verse four, by doing his will. Isn't that how we glorify him by doing his will? It would be difficult for a person today to argue, I am glorifying the Father, but I'm just not obeying what he wants me to do. That's a contradiction. And, and Jesus would teach in Matthew 5:16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so not only our obedience, our service to the Lord is an indicator of. Of wanting God to be glorified through our actions. Jesus also prayed for the unity of all believers. It's unfortunate we don't see that today. Even those who nominally claim to be believers. And many of them are not true believers. Because true believers are obedient to the gospel. But even among those who are nominally believers we do not see the kind of unity for which the Lord prayed. And we need to ask ourselves, does that bother us? Are are we content to be ourselves while others are not honoring the prayer of Jesus? Does it give us pain to see people claiming to be one who are not one? How can we contribute to unity? What can we do? What's our part? Well, I think no better beginning place comes than 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Because Paul would write to a church that was struggling because they weren't together. And and he would write by inspiration, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren. Notice, I plead with you. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You and I have to be sure that we carry out the Lord's prayer of being united we need to contribute. And and one of the ways we do that is by teaching and accepting and believing and practicing the only message that can un- unite true believers. We, we do not take liberties with the scriptures. We do not reject what the scriptures teach. We do reject false unity. We do reject the idea that people can... Do different things religiously and believe different things religiously and practice different things religiously and really be the same. The prophet would ask centuries ago, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Of course, that's true. And so Jesus prayed for believers. And tonight you need to ask yourself, Am I truly a believer? And I hope his prayer will motivate you to submit to his will. We've been talking about prayer. Let's pray together for just a moment. Father, we're blessed to be able to read what Jesus prayed. And we're thankful, Father, for the great love that he had for you. In wanting to live among us so that you could be glorified through his obedience and his sacrifice. And we're thankful, Father, that he cared for his apostles and wanted the best for them. And for the work that they did in spreading the gospel. But, Father, we're most deeply touched now by the fact that he prayed for us. Undeserving of that love, we are nonetheless grateful. And we pray that you will help us in response to the Lord's prayer to be together, to glorify you, and to seek only to do your will. And Father, we know that someday we will not have to pray away from you but that we will be able to see you in eternity. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need to respond to the invitation tonight, we offer it to help you if you're not a Christian to become one. We also offer the invitation for you if you are a Christian but you're not living as you should. We will pray for you. There is power in prayer. and We'd gladly pray for you if that would help you get your life right. If you need to come, do it while we stand and sing.